You're listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul Abernathy. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Electrician Live. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host. As always, I want to welcome you to the podcast where we always talk about things electrically related or somewhat electrically related. There's always electricity or electrical installations or electricians revolving around our topics at some point. So I want to thank you to the show. And today is a little bit of a special show uh, for those that are listening. We're going to look at some questions that were being used around the country at different conferences. And I was lucky enough to get some ahead of time. Uh, and again, some of these are going to be discussed around the country at a later date and not even actually uh, available yet. So these are some kind of newer questions that we can kind of dig into, and some of them are a bit unique. Now, the thing about questions, and I get hundreds of questions submitted to me, um, sometimes questions are pretty damn vague. I mean, the question is, one, not written right, and it uses terminologies that aren't necessarily accurate, but... We do our best as educators to try and uh, maneuver our way through them and be able to give a good response, at least the best we can. And uh, and sometimes we know we can just say, look, we're going to have to do some assumptions here because the question is not real good. Now, the premise behind it, and I know that when people submit questions, What's in their mind sometimes does not translate well with what's in my mind or somebody else's mind. So we have to you know, take all those things, obviously, into consideration when we're looking at a question, that type of thing. So first question uh, that we have that was asked, and the question was, and I'll read the question exactly how, it was, you know, how it's submitted. It says, are receptacle outlets required to be installed above a built-in desk located in a living room um, of a dwelling unit. Okay, so couple what we want to do with this is kind of look at it in two different ways. Obviously, we're going to have we're in a living room, and you as an electrician know that, or the studious electrician that you are, you know there's going to be wall spacing requirements. So for me, in my mind, immediately this this pushes me to two ten point fifty two. Of course, we have two ten point fifty two a, which is general provisions, and I probably should mention I'm in the uh, 2020 edition of the National Electrical Code, in case uh, you didn't know that. And although this is not going to change, but again, it's worthy to let you know what cycle we're in. So if you're sitting around the job site, you're listening, go run over and grab your code book. 2017 will work for this or 2020. doesn't really matter uh, for this application. So you have your normal receptacles that you're going to locate, you know, the 6-foot, 12-foot rule, you know, where we talk about measured along the floor line. Uh, if you have a break, a break in the wall line like a door, or if you have a break in the wall line like a fireplace or a fixed cabinet, for example, then you're going to start the measurement from the edge of that, and you're going to go 6 feet, and you're going to have a receptacle anywhere with, from the point of the break in the wall line, uh, of the floor line, up to 6 feet. Why? Because, again, if I were to take my finger and touch the edge of the door, I need to make sure I have a receptacle within six feet. Why is that? Because that's what the code says. The, the actual code says in 
210.52A1, which is spacing. And I'm going to read this to you because I I realize it's a podcast. Spacing, it says, Receptacles shall be located such that at no point measured horizontally along the floor line of any wall space. And, of course, A2 is going to tell us what a wall space is. We'll assume we know what it is. Uh, Along the floor line of any wall space is more than six feet from a receptacle outlet. So... The reason you hear us talk about a 6 to 12 foot rule is because if I'm measuring from a door, I go 6 feet, and then I go another 12 feet to the next receptacle outlet. Again, remember, we're talking about the outlet itself, not the device that goes in it. That could be a duplex or a simplex. Most people are going to put a duplex receptacle in there, but I'm just saying. Any point in that wall, if I were to touch that wall, I have to be within 6 feet of a receptacle. So if I'm in the space between the doorway and the receptacle that's six feet out, I'm within six feet. If I touch the wall anywhere between the two receptacle outlets that are 12 feet apart, if I go right in the middle and I touch the wall, then I'm within six feet of a receptacle outlet. You with me? So that's something that we slang in the industry. You know, we hate slangs in the industry, um, but we use them a lot. Uh, That is an example of... This six foot, 12 foot rule that you hear us talk about all the time. Okay. So that's an example of that. Now, let's kind of dig back down to what we're talking about. So this is in a living room and it's a built in desk. Now, again, assumptions here desk, flat surface. Okay. So it's a desk. Now, nobody said, since it's built in, it's actually built in to the building or the design or whatnot, or maybe it's part of cabinets on one side, and then you get the built-in desk, okay? So let's talk about wall spacing. So that's going to take us to 210.52A2. And there's three parameters here for wall space or what's considered a wall space because the concept of, of needing the receptacle, okay, is about things like wall space applications, right? We're starting here. We're certainly going to be in 210.52, but we're starting here. So what does it say? What constitutes a wall space? Well, it says in A2, it says, as used in this section, and of course this section being dot .52, of course, it says in this section, a wall space shall include the following. Number one, any space two feet or more in width, including space measured around corners and unbroken along the floor line, by doorways and similar openings, fireplaces, and fixed cabinets that do not have countertops or similar work surfaces. So this is a built-in desk. It's really not stated that it's a cabinet. Of course, it could be cabinets where you get to cabinets and then you come to a built-in, you know, kind of a neat little build-in thing, but, you, but, you, but we're talking a built-in desk and we didn't really get asked about cabinets. It really wasn't in the question, okay? So, as we say here, if they're not dealing with cabinets, not built in, not opening, then the wall line is just, again, the 6 and six and 12 foot rule. Uh, these are just constituting what is a wall space. So, any wall space that's two feet or more uh, that is not broken by the fixed cabinets uh, or by the fireplace or by, you know, the uh, doorways or similar then we just kind of got an understanding of the wall space, and that's what we're dealing with, okay? Uh, Next, it goes in. It says, the space occupied by fixed panels. This is number two, folks. 
The fixed the space occupied by fixed panels in walls, excluding sliding panels. So if you have a sliding door, you know you're measuring around your wall. Let's say your living room has a door, a sliding door that's going out to a patio, a deck, or something. The part that slides is a break in the wall line. The part that's fixed, the glass panel that's fixed, that is to be counted as wall space. So you're going to make your measurement from the edge of the sliding portion, and you're going to measure from the side where it has the the uh, fixed pane, and that's just considered wall space. Okay, so you've got your six foot. So that if I were to take my finger and I walked over there and I touched the edge of the fixed portion of where the door slides next to where it slides, I need to have a receptacle within six feet of that point. So that's where we came up again with the six foot, uh, 12 foot kind of rule of thumb. I hate rules of thumb, but that is where that came from. All right. The next one is item three. It says the space afforded by fixed room dividers, such as freestanding bar type counters or rails, uh, things like that. So, again, um, if I come up the steps and let's say my wall stops and I'm coming up steps and on the left side I've got some open rails, if it's an extension of the wall, uh, it acting like it, then it is actually going to be considered wall space. I could have a fixed divider, let's say a framed up wall that's separating the kitchen from the dining room or the kitchen from the living room, and this is not just cabinets with a top put on it, but it's actually a wall that is built and the cabinets are, or maybe are pushed against it. Uh, and it's actually dividing two rooms. Then again, that is wall space. Uh, if it is two feet or more. So again, it has to start out with being a fixed room divider or bar type countertops or rails. And then if it qualifies as wall space, cause it says any space, two feet or more back in, uh, 210.52A21, then we're going to have to put receptacles there, okay? Makes sense? All right. Now, some people ask, okay, what about the fixed dividers? They're, they're, or what about the railings? The, the railings, you can't put a receptacle in the railings? No problem. You have the A3, which talks about floor receptacles. And if I put them in uh, or on the floor, they, you know, they have to be within 18 inches. If they're 18 inches of the wall, then they can count as meeting the wall space requirement. Okay? So, again, just kind of laying the foundation for the question. All right? So the next one we get to, and, of course, I'll wrap this one all up in the end and answer the question. Kid, again, it's a learning lesson, so bear with me. So the next one is A4. Now, the A4 is saying, okay, countertops and similar work surface receptacle outlets. And it goes on to say, receptacles installed for countertop or similar work surfaces as specified in 210.52C. Now, 210.52C is talking about counter and workspaces or work surfaces, I should say, in kitchens, pantry, breakfast rooms, dining rooms, and similar areas of dwellings. Okay. The living room is not a similar area of those. Okay. So we're ruling that one out. And it also goes on to say, shall not be considered as a receptacle outlet required by 210.52A, which we just read. These are the spacing ones, okay? So any of them that would be for the work surface in the provisions of 210.52C, which is the kitchens, pantry, whatever, they're in addition, okay? They're not to try to meet the requirements of the room spacing, okay? 
You still have your spacing requirements. Okay, and we're not talking about countertops, uh, you know, the two-foot, four-foot rule, which we'll obviously talk about in another episode. We're talking about what would be around your wall and things like this. Okay, so again, keeping that in mind, two different scenarios. Now, let's kick it back to the end. When you go back and look at the space, since this is a built-in desk with a flat surface, it does not break the wall line. Okay, so again, when you go back into 210.52A2 about the wall space, if you remember, it says any wall space two feet or more in width, okay, uh, measured along the floor line by doorways, similar openings, fireplaces, and fixed cabinets that, quote, do not have countertops or similar work surfaces. This built-in desk does have a work surface. So it still would have to meet the wall spacing requirements. It's not going to require you to have a receptacle at the desk. But it's going to require you to have, it might be prudent to do that. But you still have to have the wall space requirements. Another thing we always have to remember that can I have additional receptacles other than what's required by the spacing? Absolutely. You can have as many additional receptacles as you want. You do have some caveats in 210.52, and there's four. And we're only going to talk about the, uh, the, the fourth one, which is located more than five and a half feet above the floor. So can I have a receptacle five and a half, uh, above five and a half feet? Absolutely. Can that receptacle count as my wall spacing requirement? Absolutely not. You, you have to keep all of those wall spacing ones that meet the requirements of 210.52a. You got to keep them down under five and a half feet. Okay, so again, well, um, it says actually located more than five and a half. So you can go five and a half feet or less, and you're still going to meet the wall spacing requirement. So to answer the question, again, long information, but I like to turn things into a lesson. It says the receptacle outlets required are receptacle outlets required to be installed above a built-in desk located in a living room of a dwelling unit? And the answer is no. You still have to meet the spacing requirements. Can you add additional ones? Yes. Are they required specifically for the built-in desk? Absolutely not. Okay. Um, And again, so your code references here are 210.52A1. And again, that's what's going to tell you in this case. It's it's just a desk. There's nothing in here that requires it. It's not a cabinet. Uh, But again, even if it was a cabinet, we'd break the floor line. Um, This isn't listed as a cabinet. And it's a built-in desk, so it is a work surface. Okay, so it's just it's not going to affect our wall spacing requirement at all. Okay, makes sense. All right, so that's kind of the answer to that. Good question. Uh, used it as a, a learning moment. So uh, we'll move on to another question. Okay, the next question is quite interesting, and I am obviously going to be there are going to be some people that agree, and there are going to be some people that disagree, and I really don't care because I already know who will disagree, and they're just trying to make money. So I'm going to give it to you the way I see it, and you can like it or you can dislike it. But this is the question. An existing ceiling fan is being replaced, and a new ceiling fan is mounted by a means that is now considered a receptacle by Article 100. So they're talking about the new devices that are... Uh, being used to mate to a female to a male mating system, which is a, a unique system that came into the code a couple cycle uh, two cycles ago. Actually, you know what? I think it was seventeen. It was 
that yeah, it might be 17 that we actually got it in there, but it's a new design. And I cover it in my code change cycle back in, I think, edition number one or volume one. If you want to subscribe to that, you can get the back issues. That was about 11 months ago. And I describe it, but that's what they're talking about. So you had an existing ceiling fan. They take it down. They had the ceiling box up there. And now they want to come in and they want to use this new mating system, which puts a receptacle because of how we've changed the definition of receptacle in there. It's still the same intent. But now they're going to say, okay, so they're saying, okay, so you have an existing ceiling fan, you took it down, and now you're using this new mounting system, which is considered a receptacle by Article 100, and now it's in place, and that's what's holding the the ceiling fan. So nothing really changed except for the the mating system, uh, which could arguably be a better connection. Again, hate it or love it, whatever it is. Now, here's what the real question is. It says, would this be considered a modification of the circuit and would it now be required to have GFCI protection? Okay, so here's the thing. If you look at the circuit, because a question asked about the circuit. So we'll assume that what he's talking about, because we can't really use, I'm gonna, I just want to go here. We can't, can't really use the receptacle rule for replacement. Uh, because if you go look at 406.4D and then you look down at D4 for AFCI protection, it says if a receptacle outlet location in any area specified in 210.12A, B, or C is replaced, well, there was never a receptacle there in the first place, okay? It wasn't. You with me? So, again, you could say, well, Paul, that's not what it says. I'm just being real with you. There wasn't a receptacle there in the first place. So that takes us out of that. So what it does is puts us firmly back in 210.12, and obviously we're going to be at D. And this is talking about branch circuits, extensions, or modifications. Okay, I am not modifying the branch circuit. I'm not. I'm not extending it. I'm not uh, replacing it. I am just simply taking one type of method and changing it and using a device that is obviously qualifying as a receptacle, but I'm not replacing a previous receptacle. You can like it or hate it or whatever, and I'm a big proponent of AFCI, so I know the haters over there are going to say, no, 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 AFCI, is fine. You know, your jurisdiction, your call. But for me, literally as the question's asking me, I never had a receptacle there before. I'm using a new method to do this, okay? And, and also, I'll, I'll just give you some back history. We do have areas in the code when it talks about GFCI protection in certain areas uh, in 210.8, which say if you're using this type of mechanism in, let's say, a bathroom, then it doesn't have to be GFCI protected. As long as there's no additional receptacle built into whatever you're putting on it that could allow somebody the access. So I'm going to use the same common sense here. I really am and going to say, now, is it okay to put it on AFCI? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you know what? It, depending on the time in the brand circuit, it, it might already require AFCI on that brand circuit that's in those. Because uh, we've been having the requirement for AFCIs all the way back in the 99 code. Okay? Started out just in bedrooms of dwelling units. Okay? So didn't really say this was a bedroom, what have you. 
but it might already have required it anyway. So this might be a moot point. So I'm going to assume it does not. And I'm assuming that it's older. And we're also going to assume that the box can hold the fan. And, you know, again, don't let your mind wander. We're simply going to answer the question. Would this be would this be considered a modification of the circuit? And my answer to that would be no, it is not a modification to the circuit. Okay, so I'm going to say no would not require AFCI protection. It is not modifying it. It is, there is also an exception uh, as well under D for you know up to six feet. Although we're not moving this, okay. So again, not dealing with that. So that's that's my answer to that question. Interesting question, but again, the the, the major portion of this is one: the replacement doesn't come in because it wasn't a receptacle before, so you can't hang your hand on that. Uh, and uh, and then the next uh, por- and in twenty twenty did add the word replaced. Okay, so again, it kind of fixed itself with that. And we're not modifying the circuit. And 210.12 is talking about the circuit, not the device. And we're not extending it. We're not doing any of that. So I'm going to say absolutely not. It's not going to be required for you to do it. But can you do it? Absolutely. Is it required to do it? No. All right. So the next question, good questions, good questions. The next question that comes up, it says, uh, is there a code compliant way to connect an EMT to a weatherproof junction box with threaded hubs. Okay, so it says a weatherproof junction box. We'll assume it's a wet location. Um, and so typically EMT fittings, the, the normal, uh, of course, this is a wet location, so it'd be compression, have to be, you know, rated for the location. Uh, a, a set screw probably would not work. But anyway, talking threads of a connector, which is also a fitting. So if you're in UL 514, you got the different 514 A, B, C, D, all this for different fittings and boxes and and threaded entries and all this stuff. If you're one of those UL freaks, uh, you know, again, I say that with affection and uh, because I'm saying code freak. Um, So let's just weatherproof boxes. Typically, a weatherproof box is designed with if it's threaded entry, they're called they have tapered threads. Because as it screws in, it kind of seals it from water inclusion or in- entry. Um, so typical fittings uh, for like EMT, things like that, are typically a straight thread design. It's straight because you just put a lock nut on it. Um, and, of course, you couldn't do the tapered with the lock nut, which can work very well. But typically these waterproof boxes have tapered threading. So you wouldn't use a standard EMT fitting into it. Obviously, you wouldn't do it anyway, wet location. Um, but my advice is to find out what your box has, if it has tapered or straight entry um, with a threaded hub, and find out the fittings that you're going to use with your EMT. So say it's EMT outside and you're going to use a compression fitting and then a connector, is just find out whether or not um, that is a straight or tapered end. Now, the straight ones for a wet location, typically uh, you'd still use a lock nut on it. Um, again, feeder applications, brand circuit applications, uh, no standard lock nuts for service applications, obviously. But what you're going to find is it usually has a grommet. And the grommet is going to be between the fitting and the enclosure. And then it, you know when it compresses, when you put the lock nut on it, uh, it's going to seal it off. Right, and of course, we got all these issues above live parts and all this kind of stuff that we we got to deal with in, in three twelve and and for cabinets and things like that and in three fourteen for boxes fittings everything rated for the environment we get it, 
But just pay specific attention to the whether it's straight or tapered thread count. And you can get that information from your manufacturer, okay? Don't overthink it. Uh, it's just understand that threaded hubs that are designed for wet locations typically are going to be tapered, and straight connections for connectors typically aren't going to be um, a tapered. Typically going to be straight if they're designed to use with a lock nut. So just keep that in mind uh, in your in your application, and you shouldn't have any any problem with that. So again, not going to give a code reference there. Just keep in mind that typically waterproof junction boxes uh, that have hubbed entries, uh, FS boxes and things like that, are probably going to be tapered, and you don't want to use a straight connect uh, straight connector into a tapered. Uh, hub because it's not going to seal right for the wet locations all right or damp locations uh so think about that and reach out to and say hey is this a straight or tapered uh and just mirror it up to a junction uh weatherproof junction box that's rated now if it's another type of junction box then that you go straight into and you have a lock nut and you have a gasket then you're good all right let's look at another question here good questions good questions okay the next one says if an NMB, non-metallic sheath cable, support is used as listed, such as a Gardner Bender multi-cable staple snapshot, okay, this is a little assembly that allows you to stack as you come down and, and, and enter to a box or something like that. Um, is there a need to derate for bundling? It says, for example, the packet says each support can be used for eight 12-2s with ground type NMB cables. Okay, so first things first, uh, these tools, these are designed to separate the cable. Typically, these are designed to separate. This would be really uh, expensive, okay, if you use these um, like you're supporting NMB and you're using these uh, every uh, four and a half feet. Right, this this would get expensive. These things run like I don't know six to ten dollars a piece. I don't think you're going to do that. You're, you've got more you more room on here to space out your your cables and everything. So, but we're going to use the premise of maybe some different thoughts, processes, and how you would use these. Now, typically, typically these are what you would use as your you know again not the only way you use it, but this is typically how these would be used. If you're taking them down and you're you're going to bring all these these NMBs down, because of course it can be used for coaxial data cables. You know, it's all about the management and how you how you do it. Okay, all right, but you can use them as taking them into a box, or you could use them actually as a support if you're going to run them along a, a stud. So again, I don't want to limit their application to just say typically coming down into a box because that's. That's not its only application for these, right? But basically, they're they're a, a wire management type of system. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to do is, as obviously, the whole premise of the question is saying bundling. So we know what they're more concerned about, right? They're more concerned with the number of NMBs bundled together, and whether that this is going to create a problem. So let's have a look over at 334, and we're obviously, since we're talking opacity, I mean, we're assuming they're going to be secured and support in accordance with 334.30 anyway. 
Okay, so typically 12 inches of every entry into an enclosure or junction box. We're going to assume that. Of course, you have some allowances uh, if it's a single nail up. But again, you wouldn't use one of these stackers for that. So we're not going to go there. Um, so could you use these to also cable management every four and a half feet? Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to say it's plausible for all those, whether it's gang coming together into a junction box, maybe a, because of you're using this, you're probably going to have a three gang, four gang, or whatever like that, or even a two gang. Okay. Um, okay, so we'll assume all that, everything. Now, let's look at the request. So we, we already, we're going to meet the securing and supporting requirements. Yes, it can do that. Yes, it's fine for that. Um, now we have to look at ampacities. So, again, it's because they said bundling, that's what's going to drive us to bundling. So we want to look at 334.80, dealing with impacity and how we address this. So I'm going to read this because in order to bring context to what we're talking about, we need to understand what we're talking about. And the 334.80 says, The ampacity of a type NM or NMC cable shall be determined in accordance with 310.14. The ampacity shall not exceed that of the 60 degrees C rated conductors. Now, the 90 degree rating shall be permitted in typical NMB, the dash B uh, that we see like in this question. The dash B means that it's 90 degree rated insulated conductors inside of it. Although, again, ampacities are going to be limited to 60, okay, we and in terminal limitations as well in 110.14, all that's going to dictate it, and the sizes are going to dictate that and all that. We can use 90 for adjustment and corrections because this is NMB, okay? It's just after adjustment and corrections, we can't exceed the value that would be under the 60 degree anyway. So all we're using adjustment and corrections for is to make sure that we have a conductor that can still handle the amps that we need without exceeding the value under the 60 degree column, okay? And to make sure the conductor still has enough ampacity to have to be usable, okay, after adjustment and corrections. Okay, go watch our D-rating demystify. That might explain that a little more. All right, so let's look at, let's read a little further. It says the 90-degree C rating shall be permitted to be used for ampacity adjustment and corrections uh, calculations. And if you're not familiar with that, that is 31015B and 31015C in the 2020 edition. If you're in a 2017, it's 31015B2A and 31015B3A that you can go look that up if you want. Okay, let's move further. Um, it says provided, so you can use the, you know, for adjustment and correction, use the 90, provided the final calculated ampacity does not exceed that of the 60 degrees C. Now, the final calculated ampacity of the circuit we're dealing with, right? Still can't exceed 60 degrees C. All we're doing adjustment and corrections, again, is to make sure we still have a conductor that's viable as well to be able to handle load. But can't exceed the values at 60 degrees. And the reason we say that is because maybe I'm using the 90, and I do an adjustment and correction, and it says from the 90 that a conductor's worth, I'm just going to throw a number out there, say that it's I'm, I'm any number here, say that it's good for 32 amps, okay? Um, and let's say the 10 is limited to 30, uh, small conductor rules, let's say. We're not talking motors or anything. Just because after adjustment and corrections it says it's good for 32, I can't use that 32. It's still limited to 30. 
but the 32 is adequate to still handle my load. So all you're doing is verifying that the conductor can still handle the load uh, and all this stuff. So again, it's it's a magic dance we do with conductor sizing. Go listen to or watch our derating demystified video and you'll get more. And it's also getting updated for 2020 here shortly. So a lot of work that's got to go on with that. Okay. So again, adjustment and correction from the 90s still can't exceed the 60. Every guy is good. Now it says the ampacity of types NM and NMC cable installed in cable trays shall be determined in accordance with 392.80A. Again, that's if your NMB is actually evaluated for use in a cable tray. And if it will be, okay, then you'll know that because it'll tell you that on there. Okay. So next. So here's the two big ones. Okay, if you're following along at 334.80, this is going to kind of answer our question here. So it says, where more than two NM cables containing two or more current carrying conductors in a typical 12-2 does have two or more. That's two. The neutral in this case is current carrying. Okay, what goes out must come back in a probably a not reality situation, but that is the way we think about how it works. Okay, um, so it says... Uh, are installed without maintaining spacing between the cables through the same opening in wood framing that is to be sealed with thermal insulation, caulk, or ceiling foam. Okay, so the premise of this first one here, folks, is two or more cable NM cables containing two or more current carrying conductors, and again, a 12-2 does have two, okay, uh, are installed without maintaining spacing between cables through the same opening in wood framing, okay? And in also says that is to be sealed with thermal insulation, caulk, or sealing foam. Then it goes on to tell you that the ampacity of each conductor shall be adjusted in accordance with table 310.15c1 and the provisions of 310.14a2 exceptions shall not apply and, of course, the exception that we're talking about is the 10-foot, 10% allowance, okay? So you can't apply that to this, this rule for N and B. Okay, that's only through the holes that are going to be sealed, right? And that would be typically uh, your top plate uh, where maybe over top of a panel. You typically would not seal the walls that's just going through studs. You with me? Okay, so that's in that one. The next one says... Where more than two NM cables contain two or more current carrying conductors are installed in contact with thermal insulation without maintaining spacing between cables, the opacity of each conductor shall be adjusted in accordance with table 31015C1. Okay, first things first. It says where two or more NM cables containing two or more current carrying conductors. In this case, in this example, you have, you know, he's asking about multiple 12-2s on these stackers, if you will, all right, without maintaining spacing. Okay, nobody defines what spacing is. So if I have two cables touching each other because I bundle them, then there is obviously no spacing. If I move them apart, nobody defines the distance. Now, you want to use common sense. You want to come up with your own rule of thumb. You want to say it has to be 10 centimeters, 4 centimeters, 1 inch, whatever. That's up to you. That's up to your HJ. But the concept of these stackers is to provide spacing. Okay? Separation. Now, 
That's not to say that I stack all of these on one of the rungs of this stacker, and then they're not maintaining spacing, and they're touching or they're together, then, I'm, then I have a problem. I have to maintain the spacing to do this, okay? All right, so you've got all the rules, and it sends you back to, to, to table 310.15c1, and that's, again, that's going to that's gonna deal with whether you have the, the number of current carrying conductors and you have to apply some you know, percentages to that. Okay, so the key here, if you go back to the question, it says if I'm supporting them and everything's done and it's listed and I'm using one of these stackers, is there a need to bundle? And the answer to that is no, unless you're not able to maintain spacing. And if you can maintain spacing, then and again, and you're, you're not uh, you're not exceeding this this rule there, then you don't have anything to worry about. Okay, so that's how we're going to answer that question. Uh, because again, it's all based on with uh, you're unable to. It's in contact with thermal insulation. Again, that's if there's no thermal insulation. Let's say it's in a ceiling between floors. It's typically not insulated. Then it's it's not an issue because it's not in contact with thermal insulation. Okay, so you have this these issues when it talks about again that is maintaining spacing, and that's what's going to apply here. And, again, nobody gives a definition on maintaining spacing, what constitutes maintaining spacing, that type of thing. So now, with that said, that is 334.80. Uh, we do want to look at 310.15 real quick because these are still cables, and we have to see some rules as well there, so just so we can clean this up. So I, I wanted to talk about the ampacity value and these direct relation to either through board holes that are going to get sealed, maybe a top of panel plate or whatnot, top plate or something like that, or where they're running in contact with thermal insulation, let's say running parallel with a joist, or you know, and it's going to have insulation in there or not. And a lot of your interior walls will not have insulation. The exteriors will, okay? The way you take these things into consideration, but again, it says, are contained in contact with thermal insulation without maintaining spacing between cables. Well, this stacker is designed to maintain some spacing. Now, can I overload one of the rungs of a stacker and then I don't have spacing? Yes, and it pertains to just that grouping. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, you can install in most NMBs, let's say 12 and 14 gauge NMBs, you can put up to nine current carrying conductors together. That'd be, let's say, four 12 twos, uh, that's, which is eight current carrying conductors, uh, or one 12 three and three 12 twos, um, that, you know, all that type of thing. And even after adjustment and corrections, you still have a conductor that still has ampacity to handle the problem. You start getting over nine, you got a problem. Okay. But when it comes to things that we typically would use these for, which would be 12 gay, uh, twelve NMB, 14 NMB, and even 10. You, you don't have as much of a problem. 10, maybe you start getting into a problem. But 14s and 12s, you don't when you start, unless you start having more than nine current carrying conductors. So if you stack them right and you do it right and you, do, and you don't have more than four on each level and they are maintaining separation, then uh, there you go. Not going to be an issue. And if again, if you're not making contact with thermal insulation with them, again, 
not an issue. So, but what we needed to do was we did agree we needed to go back really quickly, uh, and we need to look at three times three ten dot fifteen c one. And what this says, and we'll go on and read it. It says more than three current current conductors. It says the opacity of each conductor shall be reduced as shown in Table three ten dot fifteen c one with a number of current carrying conductors in a raceway or cable exceeds three. Okay, so that's the first trigger. Well, a 14.2, 14.3 is not going to do that. Uh, 12.2, 12.3 is not going to do that unless the neutral is current carrying. And probably, depending on how you use it, it's probably not, but it could be. So, again, in this case, the first trigger is a cable has to have the number of current current conductors or cable exceeds three. So exceeds three. So it'd be four or more, right? Okay, makes sense. All right, the next one says, or were single conductors or multi-conductor cables not installed in raceways and you wouldn't put N and B in the raceway. You can, but you wouldn't in this case. You wouldn't do that. Residential, you wouldn't do it. Uh, It says are not installed in raceways are installed without maintaining spacing for a continuous length longer than 24 inches. Okay, so do you have the propensity to do this? Yeah, if you use these stackers and it's going to separate them, but then you have the span between the stackers, let's say one every four and a half feet, and the con- the cables aren't separated. Let's say you tie wrapped and bundled together. Obviously, you'd be an idiot. But if you did it, I shouldn't say idiot because people used to do that with home run trunks many years ago and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's all about the ability to heat to dissipate the inner cables that can't allow heat because of mutual heating. But as long as you pull them apart or you keep them separated uh, between the two points, and again, that's kind of like stapling. You don't need to do anything. Just pull them apart a little bit. Then you maintain separation, and then you're good to go. So, again, it's a real easy fix on this. So, um, you know, answering the question here, um, do you have to apply bundling? Again, no unless you're overstacking the shelves on these and where you're going to have more than, let's say, more than four uh, cables, uh, more 14-2s or more than four 12-2s, then you might have to get into the bundling applications, and that's just going to be kicked in by 310.15C1 uh, application. Um, so, uh, again, just don't do that. <laughs> I wanted to cover that anyway. But, yes, they're listed. They're fine. And they're designed to offer separation. And so, again, I usually never have used these uh, except where you come, everything comes down and it goes into uh, a, a switch box or a septic box. You know, that's going to have like a, a multi-gang box. But other than that, nothing because they're expensive. Um, but maybe you've just got so many running on a, a, up a stud that there's no way for you to keep it uh, an inch and a quarter Uh, away from the edge so maybe this is your only option and that's fine just use your due diligence and how you install them on there don't try to stick them all under one shelf these are multiple shelves on these things just don't do it that way and you should be okay all right let's look at another question here we'll round this out we're doing we're gonna gonna do pretty good here i guess in our in our time so we're okay so the next question asks is it isn't necessary to connect all 125 volt receptacles in a dwelling unit garage 
to the 210.11C4 uh, required branch circuit, or can we have additional individual branch circuits supplying receptacles for specific appliances such as central vacs or freezers in a garage? Okay, so the first thing we want to look at is their reference to 210.11C4. So we have to look at that so we can kind of, you got to see where you are so you know where you're going. And so this is the requirement for a dwelling unit to have a branch circuit for a garage. And, of course, if it's an attached garage, it's going to, you know, and and you're going to have this requirement. And if you have a detached garage, this is only going to, a garage, it's only going to kick in if you got power to that detached garage. Once you got power to that detached garage, okay, then, then here you go. All right, so let's read the rule. It says, and we're at uh, 210.11C4, C, uh, C for those that like to follow along. It says, garage brand circuits. It says, in addition to the number of brand circuits required by other parts of this section, and of course the other parts of this section were the laundry, bathroom, and small appliance brand circuits that are required. Um, uh, it says, uh, at least one 120-volt, 20-ampere, Branch circuit shall be installed to supply receptacle outlets required by 210.52G1. So this whole circuit is to supply the receptacles that are required by 210.52G1. If memory serves me right, this has to do with vehicle bays. Okay. All right. So it says for attached garages and in detached garages with electric power, it goes on to say this circuit shall have no other outlets, none other than the requirements for 210.52G1, okay? And, of course, there's an exception here for a readily accessible outdoor receptacle outlet that might be just on the other side of the wall that might be there to facilitate, I don't know, 25 feet of the air conditioning unit, Uh, okay? There's no required circuit for that. But there is a requirement for it to be a receptacle within 25 feet. So why not pop out and hit that? It's not going to affect anything. It's fine. Again, very limited use. So you're not going to tax it out and, and, and all of this. Thing. So anyway, let's kind of not drift off. So that's what we got the requirement. And it makes it very clear in the 2020 code. And it's required by 210.52G1. Okay. So this is the branch circuit for that. So this is a required branch circuit. Now, let's go over to 210.52G1 and look at it, and that is dealing with the garage. So now we're just going to assume we have the garage. Uh, in an attached garage or, again, a detached with power, it says that I'm going to have at least one receptacle outlet shall be installed in each vehicle bay and not more than five and a half feet above the floor. Okay, so we made a direct reference from 210.11C4 directly to 210.52G1, okay? All right, so we kind of got an idea. So if it's a three-car garage, three-truck garage, it's a vehicle bay. I have to have a receptacle for each one of those bays, okay? And if it's a three-car garage, um, let's just say, um, doesn't again, I didn't have to be car because it says vehicle. So we'll say we have a three vehicle garage because I know I got people out there that'll that'll say something wonky about that because there's always those people. And so I've got as long as the receptacle is in the footprint 
uh, receptacles in the footprint of each one of those vehicle bays, I'm good to go because it has to serve that vehicle bay. All right, so I'm good to go. So the question says, can we have additional individual branch circuits applying receptacles for specific appliance in there, uh, such as a central vacuum? Absolutely. You can have additional if you want. People say this also for the bathroom. It's the same concept. As long as I have the 20 amps that's supplying the receptacle serving the sink within three feet, can I have other receptacles in there? Absolutely. Just remember the other rules, GFCI protection and that type of thing. So, But can I have additional ones? Absolutely. We have direction on what this garage brand circuit has to cover. We've got that direction. But nothing says we can't have other ones. Certainly. Have whatever you need. Just make sure you account for them and, you know, things like that and you're in everything you're doing. And so, I mean, again, but, uh, yeah, not a problem. No problem at all. Go for it. Okay, let's do one more. Okay, the next question we have says, when must I use the table value instead of a motor nameplate current rating? Okay, so obviously motors, obviously Article 430, the tables that they're referring to, uh, since they said nameplate and current and all this. So we're going to assume here, because uh, there's a lot of tables in 430, okay? Short circuit ground fault in 430.52. And uh, we have a little table for 430.22E. And there's a lot of tables. But since the way they're talking here, um, and of course we have 430.32, which is for the overload. And that's kind of kind of kicking answering this question here in a second. But... Okay, so the tables we're referring to, or whoever the, wrote the questions referring to, is 430.248, 249, 250. And in uh, 430.251 is typically lock rotor. We deal with that a lot when we're talking about fire pumps. We're not there. We're going to kick back. We're just talking about finding the FLC, full load current. Now, when you're sizing the feeders, uh, conductors, or the feeders, uh, short circuit ground fault protection, or you're sizing the branch circuit, no, and you're sizing the conductors and the and the short circuit ground fault protection, all that. You need to know the FLC. You have to get that from the table. Okay, the nameplate is not utilized except for in some uh, rare instances uh, when it comes to other than using it for overload. So I shouldn't say rare. You're going to use the nameplate value. Anytime you do an overload calculation, unless something would tell you otherwise. So 430.32 is going to give you that, that direction. So the question becomes, where else would I use a nameplate? I guess that's kind of a, I don't know if that's the question others. That's a question I'm going to ask myself. Paul, when would you use a nameplate rather than the FLC other than for overloads? Well, then that's where you have to kind of understand when you're dealing with something, let's say a motor that's, other than continuous duty, for example. And if you're dealing with one that's other than continuous duty, then you're going to move down. So you'd have to look at E. So, again, we'll, we'll talk about E. So that's kind of the other iffy. And if you haven't watched my motors video, um, watch the motors video. We will be updating it for 2020. Uh, but, you know, go give it a look. So other than continuous duty, most motors I would classify as continuous duty, but then you have those motors that are are not, and those would be like the 15-minute rated motors or 30 and 60-minute rated motors. Sometimes you see those a lot on uh, cranes. Um, 
you know, then you have what's called a five minute rated motor. Uh, a lot of things like elevators, freight elevators. Uh, I don't know what else. Uh, draw bridges, turntable, things like that. Okay, <laughs> you have, or you have. Uh, okay, anyway, rather than give you all of them, you can go look at Table Four Thirty Point Twenty Two E and a kind of cycle duty service, and you can look at the different op- operations here for this. It's a motor that's other than continuous duty. How's that? Now, most continuous duty motors, we take it 125% of the FLC, but this is unique. So we're dealing with a motor that's other than continuous duty, and this is kind of more than what the question asks. I'm just giving you a little more detail. Um, then I would use the nameplate rather than the FLC, okay? So, but you, you have to read it. So here's what it says. Other than continuous duty motor, it says, conductors for a motor used in a short time, intermittent, periodic or varying duty application and of course all of those are listed in the table uh, 430.22e as well so it says or you notice that on the make of the motor itself because it's going to be very evident of the use of this motor it means it's it's not ready to continue it's it's going to stop start stop start the loading is going to stop start stop start frequently those type of things based on the time factors that are given uh, in the table as well as in the motor here's what it says it says shall have an ampacity not less than the percentage of the motor's nameplate current rating shown in table 430.22e unless the authority having jurisdiction grants special permission for conductors of lower ampacity. Okay? So, for example, 430.22e might jack up the, the, the actual... Uh, size of the conductors, and then the HJ comes in and says, "Nah, that's okay. Um, just do it to the FLC. Don't don't worry about it, you know, or, or something like that." All right, or you know, if authority having jurisdiction can do many things. Okay, so again, so I'm just giving you an example when you would do it. Now, I will remind you just to throw this out there: if you're doing multiple motors, okay, and I believe if you're doing multiple motors, for example, in 430.24. And one of them happens to be a varying duty type, but it's not a continuous duty. Uh, just be careful because you're going to have to do some comparisons. Okay, you're going to have to look at this. Say, okay, and there's an exception to this. It says if I have a group of motors, I'm going to look at the uh, short time, intermediate, periodic, or varying duty ampacity rating, and do the math there under 430.22e for that. And I might have one that is continuous duty. I need to compare the two, okay? So, again, follow that. And that's the exception number one under 430.24. We talk about that in my motors video, so I want to get. But to answer the question, when must I use a table of values uh, instead of a motor's nameplate current ratings? That would be in any application except for overloads. Everywhere else, you're going to use the table values because it's a very consistent value. So nameplate values could change. But the FLC, even if the motor becomes more efficient, if you install everything using these set values in a table, then everything stays consistent. So even if it's a replacement motor, if it sticks to these tables and you size things based on these tables, there's a less chance that you're going to put a motor in there that's going to uh, have a different ampacity value that could really screw up what you might have done in your original installation. Because if you have the table, it's a three-horsepower motor, and you installed it using this table, FLC tables, say a single phase in 430.248, then a three-phase motor, then when you replace one, 
and you follow the ampacity values that are in that table and they stay very consistent, then the wire is still going to be okay, right? So it's all about consistency. And that's why we use the FLC for that application, okay? Hopefully that answered that question for you. Okay, for the next question, we're going to actually try to sneak in two additional questions here uh, in this uh, one here to end up on this one here. So I don't want to go over an hour, but we'll, we'll try to kick two in here. Uh, the first question says, can service entrance conductors and feeder conductors be installed in a common auxiliary gutter mounted at the service location? Okay, so that takes us, let's look at 230.7. It says, other conductors in raceways or cables. All right, so let's kind of look this over. It says, conductors other than service conductors shall not be installed in the same service raceway or service cable in which the service conductors are installed. Okay? So that's the, the first thing that, we, that we're familiar with. Now, here they're talking about an auxiliary gutter uh, that is adding additional wiring space. Okay, so the first thing we need to understand what an auxiliary gutter is and, and to be able to, to hope that they are not taking this out of context of something else, let's first see if this is going to apply first. Okay, because I will tell you the reason I say this is because a wireway is a raceway. Okay, an auxiliary gutter is typically not or it is not a raceway. It is adding additional space to equipment. Now, in a panel, we have service conductors coming in, and in that enclosure, we have brand circuits and feed. I mean, otherwise, how would it get there? You, you, you with me? How would it get there? So we have to take that into consideration. So now we're going to look at what the definition of an auxiliary gutter is because that's what's in the question. Okay, so... There's some out there that are people that are definitely not going to like this answer, and I eagerly await your public input. So 230.7 says other conductors in raceways or cables. Okay, so it makes it very specific. Now, you can agree to disagree, but that's what it says. We know what raceways are, again, because we have to look at this specific wire tire wiring method, Chapter 3, uh, determine whether something's a raceway or whatever or an enclosure. And we discussed what the intent of an auxiliary gutter is. So you have to run up to Article 366 and look what it says as a definition of what an auxiliary gutter. And here's what the definition says. And I won't read the non-metallic. I'll just read the metallic because you can't get them in non-metallic or uh, metallic. And, and I'll just talk about the metallic. It says, or the metal. It says, a sheet metal enclosure used to supplement Wiring space at meter centers, distribution centers, switch gear, switchboards, and similar points on the wiring system. The enclosures has hinged or removable covers for housing and protecting electrical wires, cables, and bus bars. The enclosure is designed for conductors to be laid in or set in place after the enclosure have been installed as a complete system. Uh, nowhere in here does it tell us that it's a raceway. Now, with that said, you, you do have applications in here for when you use auxiliary gutters as pull boxes, and I mean, we do have allowances in here. And we have, again, number of conductors. We have the sum of the cross-sectional area. We have a lot of rules in here. We have a lot of things in here. 
to be aware of. Okay? But one thing it does not tell us is that it's a raceway. Now, conversely, okay, if you look at what it says for a wireway, which, again, I think many people will confuse a wireway for an auxiliary gutter, um, and you're not adding supplemental space. You're just installing a wireway for convenience in how you do your installation. But here's what a wireway is, and we'll just say metal wireway under Article 376, just so you can kind of get the context here. It says, metal wireways, sheet metal troughs with hinged or removable covers for housing and protecting electrical wires and cables and in which conductors are laid in place after the raceway has been installed as a complete system. Okay? So it makes a reference directly to raceways. And it is considered by the code a raceway. Okay? You're not sold on that. Okay? No problem. No problem. So we're going to go over to what we know is a raceway. (laughs) Just so you can see the context of what we're talking about, and I'm, I'm running on a fly here. Let's just go over to um, 352, and it's dealing with rigid polyvinyl chloride, PVC. Right? The definition says a rigid non-metallic raceway of circular cross-sectional. They don't always have to be circular, but it's telling you it's a circular. Or associated couplings, connectors, and fittings uh, for the installation of electrical conductors and cables. Very similar. The other one said that it is a raceway. This is talking raceway. It's make specific reference. I can, I can go to RMC. RMC says a threadable raceway. Okay. So again, you go back and you and you and you in your mind and you're thinking, okay, auxiliary gutter. That's it's a raceway. Well, again, it, it doesn't say anything in here about being a raceway. Okay. It, it Again, it says that it's the enclosure, because that's what it says it is, an enclosure. It says an enclosure is designed for conductors to be laid or set in after the enclosures have been installed as a complete system. So this is enclosure. This isn't a raceway. Okay? So the rules that we read back on 230.7 are very specific. It says conductors in raceways or cables. Okay, that's what it's talking about for this application. All right, so that should answer that question. Oh, should I say yes or no? Okay, so the question is, can service entrance conductors and feeder conductors be installed in a common auxiliary gutter mounted at a service location? Yes, no different than you would have the service with services coming in and feeders in it as well. If you have to have an auxiliary gutter in order to facilitate um, the... um, Uh, extra additional space that's needed for the service equipment and not confusing that with the installation of a wire way, which isn't there to supplement the space of the service equipment. It's there to make the ease of installation, let's say, underneath multiple, say, service equipment that is there. And this is just uh, allow for routing and things like that. Uh, Totally different. You know, totally different application. But again, a lot of people will, you know, try to treat auxiliary gutters the exact exact same way. But again, it says right here, it's a sheet metal enclosure used to supplement wiring space. So to me, to supplement it, it has to be connected to it. So where many people might consider 
um, where many people might consider a wireway underneath a set of, say, disconnects, they might want to say that's auxiliary gutters, when in reality that is a wireway, which is a raceway, right? Okay. You don't like that? You disagree with it? That's fine. Do your own thing. Have fun. You know, whatever. Okay. Now let's look the supplement question to that. It said, next question was, in article 230.7, because we're already there, so that's why I kind of bundled this together. Exception number two, does this include type TC tray cable? Okay. In the 2020 NEC, for example, let's also understand what wiring methods can be used for service applications. Okay, because we're talking 230, right? So if you go to 230.43 and you look down and you'll notice that for the 2020 edition of the National Electrical Code, type TCER cable and is now okay for use with uh, service as service entrance conductors. Okay, so that part's okay. The question is, and the context of this. I'm going to have to assume that they're, they're saying, okay, well, you're going to have other conductors that aren't necessarily service conductors. All right, so here's where the exception comes in, right? Because this is a cable. So you can't have service conductors and anything else in the same cable. But there is an exception. The exception says, uh, it says load management control conductors having overcurrent protection shall be permitted within service raceways. Okay, so the problem with this wording, okay, is that this is a cable. And this allows for load management control conductors having overcurrent shall be permitted within service raceways. A TC is a cable. So the first rule says that you can't do it in a raceway or a cable. Uh, but then the exception only seems to say that you, you're only permitted to do it if it's under loads management and those loads management control conductors uh, that might be in there uh, have protection. But this doesn't seem to, to permit me to do this with a cable. This only allows me to do this within a raceway. So then a smart aleck will say, well, what if I put the tray cable inside of a raceway? Well, the controls are, if the controls are inside of the tray cable, then no, you couldn't do it, all right? So I know your mind will wander in all different places. But again, the exception seems to here to apply only to raceways. And tray cable is not a raceway, okay? So that's this exception to the general rule uh, is... uh, pretty straightforward and again even if it wasn't a raceway it only applies to the load management control conductors which typically load management means that i'm from a common location i have the ability to control other loads maybe other buildings or or other offshoots uh under some type of management system and i might have some control conductor features that allow me to control this under the load management system then again i could do this in a raceway provided that those conductors are protected uh, with overcurrent protection, okay? Um, but it doesn't seem to give me that ability to do that in a tray cable. Now, remember, we do make multiple types of tray cables. There's a tray cable that only has power conductors in it. And, of course, there are tray cables with power and, and control conductors in it, okay? So, again, think about your application 
I can use Trade Cable for service applications, but if I had for load management and I had control conductors in there as well that were, you know, running to the same location where I need to control the load, okay, say it's a panel, electronic panel, or some kind of load management system, I'm not allowed to do that in Trade Cable in this application. Uh, but I am if it's uh, if I'm running service conductors in a raceway, then I can also put in load management management control conductors as well as long as they have overcurrent protection uh, within the raceway. Okay, so two different beasts um, and, and how I deal with that. Right. Uh, the other question somebody says, well, what if I run tray cable in a raceway again, and then I run the load management? Conductors in a raceway, okay, and provided you sized your raceway right, you know, you got a cable in there, so 53% fill, and you got to add these other conductors. So you have to take all that stuff into consideration. Can I put TC cable in a raceway? Yes, absolutely. And in many cases, that is one of your options that you're going to do if you're going into a building because it's got to be in a raceway, cable tray, on a messenger, or direct buried. So, yes, can and so they're service conductors. Can I put load management control conductors in there as well? Sure. If it's in a raceway, it just can't be in the cable. Okay, Probably not the most practical application here for you to be able to do this. Uh, But again, if you meet the rules, load management rules here under exception number two, and you're putting all of this in a raceway, have at it. Enjoy. Okay. All right, folks, that's it. I did go over an hour, uh, so hopefully you won't hate me. Till next time, stay safe. God bless. You've been listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul Abernathy.